When you bring your child home for the first time, you want a baby monitor you can trust. When you choose Stork, you choose technology trusted to monitor 10 million babies in hospitals every year. Stork continuously tracks your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and temperature. Visit MassimoStork.com to learn more. Stork, a revolutionary baby monitor, is born. Stork is not a medical device. Read and understand all product labeling. Massimo data on file. When you have a baby, you'll be asked by your pediatrician to come in for immunization appointments throughout the first year of his life and beyond. You have heard your friends argue passionately in favor and against vaccinations, and perhaps you have no idea why this debate even exists. What is the origin of this debate? When were vaccinations developed? This is Newbies. He's gorgeous. Um, it's a girl. Surprise! The whole family's here! So when are you having the next one? It's just poop. Ready for another? Wow, you look really tired. Ready to go back to work? Yellow poop? Seriously? Did you sterilize this? Sex? Now? You've got to be joking. You should sleep when the baby sleeps. She doesn't look anything like you. I thought you already had your baby. I did. Babies don't come with instructions, so there's newbies, helping new moms and new babies through the first year. Welcome to Newbies. Newbies is your online, on-the-go support group, guiding new mothers through their baby's first year. I'm your host, Kristen Stratton, certified birth doula, postpartum doula, and owner of Indue Season Doula Services. If you haven't already, be sure to visit our website at newmommymedia.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to our show through iTunes, so you'll automatically get new episodes when they're released. Here's Sunny with details on how you can get involved with newbies. All right. So welcome to the show, everybody. Good to have you. And a couple things that I want to highlight today. First, have you ever thought about being on newbies? Would you like to be one of the parents that we have on our show? So today's episode is a little bit different because we're not going to have a bunch of parents involved in the conversation. But for most of the episodes we do, we love to get feedback from parents on the topics. And so if that's something you're interested in, there is a form on our website. So you can go to newmommymedia.com, fill out a quick form. You can also join our Facebook Facebook group where we post all of the topics that we're going to be recording and all the times. And this is across all the new mommy media shows, which includes newbies. So that's a great way to get involved with the shows. Um, I also just got an email the other day saying from someone who had seen the product reviews on our site and said, Hey, I would really like to be a reviewer. So I put a link on the site of how you can become a reviewer. So if you go to the reviews section on newmommymedia.com, there again is another form, which just gives us some basic information about yourself and it automatically adds you to our newsletter list. So whenever companies approach us and ask us to review products, then I send out an email to everyone that's on our list. And we have about 600 or so parents that are on the list now. And if you're interested in reviewing the product, then you simply respond and we pick the best people to review the product based on what the company wants. So that's a little bit about our process. If you're interested in both of those, again, the best place to find out more information is on newmommymedia.com. Sounds familiar. If your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash, then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. Ugh, it was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. 
You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com. Okay, so before we get started with our episode today, I did want to talk about a headline. And this is one of those (laughs) videos that you see online that you simply can't get out of your head. And I know today's topic, it's a little bit heavy. And so this is one of those just bright, shining uh, moments on the internet that I think will really make your day. And the video is of this little baby. The baby's four months old, cute as a button, no hair. Or if he does have hair, it's like super blonde and you can't see it. But the baby has a rare vision condition, a disorder, and he really hasn't been able to see his mother um, or anybody for that matter very well his entire life. So this video is of the baby first wearing these cute little baby glasses. I mean, really tiny little glasses that they had specially made for this baby. And the video is showing the moment where the baby first sees his mom clearly. And this huge, huge smile just comes over his face. And honestly, it is just a treat to see. And it just warms your heart. And um, his name is Leo, by the way, little Leo. And uh, Kristen, did you get a chance to see this video? It's just so adorable. I did. You know, when these things go viral, and I'm I'm really plugged into social media, so I definitely saw it pop up in my newsfeed, and it was really precious. I mean, kids who either are hearing someone's voice for the first time or seeing someone for the first time, it's just really precious to see the reaction. So um, yeah. I'm sure that that was very satisfying for the mom to have that interaction for the first time with her baby. Yeah, it's so cute. His glasses, they're purple. I'm not sure why they chose purple, but it's so cute. And uh, they're made specifically out of rubber. So that, you know, no sharp edges, of course, that could hurt baby. And I don't know, it's one of those things. I know when, and actually, Krista, maybe you could share more knowledge on this, but um, I know when babies first come out, their vision is not good, period, right? It takes a while for our eyes to adapt, right? It does. Yeah. Actually, babies' um, vision when they're first born is actually um, limited to basically the distance from um, mom's chest or breast if they're at the breast to mom's face. Um, And then they also don't have clarity with all the colors yet. And then that slowly develops over time. So it's actually pretty amazing that our babies are really designed to see mom's face and make that connection. Mm -hmm. But you know, as much as it's nice that, you know, this baby has glasses, it's also really amazing how resilient babies are when they do have one of their senses that is not as strong as another. Um, you know, we still have all the other senses for interaction and touch being the most important one. So I'm sure that baby got a lot of love and a lot of touch and is still very bonded to his mom. Oh, of course. Well, we'll post the video to our Facebook page, our newbies Facebook page. So if you guys want to check out this adorable video, if you haven't already, you can take a look. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Today on Newbies, we are beginning an in-depth series about vaccinations in the United States. We understand this is a highly controversial topic. The purpose of this series is to educate, not pick sides. We are advocates of informed decision-making, and throughout this series, you'll hear the opinions of experts on all sides of the debate. We're starting the series today with a look at the history of vaccines from Dr. Elena Konis. Dr. Konis is a professor of history at Emory University and author of Vaccine Nation, America's Changing Relationship with Immunization. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Konis, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Konis, can you please tell us what is the definition of an immunization? Sure. An immunization is something that usually contains either all or part of a microorganism that in its normal, entire, healthy, wild form causes disease. But in an immunization, this microorganism has been either weakened or killed or kind of reduced to its minor kind of most important parts just to stimulate the immune system so that the immune system mounts an immune response. It generates antibodies in response to this immunization. And those antibodies then stay in the body so that when you come in contact with the real microorganism in its whole live part, you already have your body's defense in place and your body puts that defense into action and combats that microorganism and protects you from disease. When do we first have records of immunizations being developed? So to go back to the beginning of immunizations, you've got to go back to a time in history when we had a disease called smallpox around. And smallpox had been a plague of human populations for millennia. And for years and years, centuries in fact, people had tried to protect themselves from smallpox. If you think about chickenpox and then make it a thousand times worse, if not worse than that, that was smallpox. It caused these really painful pox all over the body. Sometimes they didn't stop at the outside. They kind of went inside onto your mucous membranes, inside your mouth, made it difficult to swallow. And sometimes in the worst cases, you would even hemorrhage or bleed from within. This was a horrible, horrible and often very deadly disease that people tried to protect themselves from. And there were a number of ways that people in Asia and Africa and Europe tried to protect themselves from smallpox for hundreds of years. Many of them realized that if you had a very mild case of smallpox, just a few pox on the outside of the body and you got better, then you would never get the disease again. And so in Asia and parts of Africa and the Middle East, people would intentionally get mild cases of smallpox to quote unquote inoculate themselves so that they got the disease once and then never got a worse case when a worse epidemic broke out. After some time, some folks, a variety of different people living in England noticed that there were other people who were also protected from really bad epidemics of smallpox. And these were milkmaids or people who worked with cows. And cows had a disease that was similar to smallpox called cowpox. And people who worked with cows, farmers, milkmaids, and others would sometimes get a mild case of cowpox, but they would be entirely protected from smallpox. So one of the most famous people to make this observation was an English doctor named Edward Jenner. He and a couple of other physicians and farmers in England in the 18th century said, well, wait a second, here's an idea. Maybe instead of being deliberately infected with mild human smallpox, we should deliberately infect people with cowpox 
and see if that protects them from smallpox. And Edward Jenner did this on a, the biggest scale. And what he showed was that it was protective. And the reason that we have the word vaccination to refer to immunizations is because vac comes from vaca or cow. And it was Jenner's observation about cows and cowpox and milkmaids that led us to the first vaccine. You mentioned Dr. Jenner, but who are some of the other vaccination pioneers and what was significant about their advances? Sure. So Jenner generally gets all of the credit for coming up with the first vaccine, but it's important to know that he actually didn't really know what he was doing. He would take pus from a cowpox blister on a cow and use it to immunize or vaccinate people. And that became the practice throughout the 19th century in Europe and also in the United States and elsewhere. And part of the reason why nobody really knew why this worked was because there was no understanding at that time that diseases were caused by germs. There were all these other ideas about what caused disease. People thought it was bad air or a weakness in, in your own constitution. They didn't have this idea that we have today that there are specific microorganisms, germs and bacteria that cause disease. And that idea doesn't really gain kind of scientific popularity until the late 19th century. And one of the pioneers of that idea that is one of the pioneers of the germ theory of disease, was Louis Pasteur, who probably most people know of his name because Pasteur came up with pasteurization of milk, and his name lives on in that word. But before Pasteur did his work on milk, he showed that the causes of disease were tiny, tiny little microorganisms or germs. And he was aware of Jenner's smallpox vaccine, and so he thought, well, maybe what we can do is take other germs and weaken them in the laboratory, make them so that they look more like cowpox than like smallpox, and use those to immunize against other diseases. So Jenner inspired Pasteur, and then Pasteur came up with a whole handful of, of other vaccines in the late 1800s. He came up with vaccines primarily to protect livestock and chickens from things like anthrax and cholera, but he also came up with the first rabies vaccine as well. So Pasteur's contributions in the late 19th century are the kind of next major leap in the development of vaccines. And then we have pretty much another quiet period. There are a handful of new vaccines that come out in the late 19th and early 20th century, but it isn't until several decades into the 20th century that scientists primarily led by a Harvard scientist named John Enders, figure out how to cultivate viruses in particular in the lab. And what this meant was once you could grow viruses in the lab, you had lots of virus to work with. And so you could cultivate lots of virus and do lots of testing with different types of weakened virus to come up with new vaccines. So once those techniques were developed, the first vaccine we got were the new polio vaccines developed in the 50s and 60s, and then a whole host of other vaccines that followed the polio vaccine, including the vaccines against measles, mumps, and rubella in the 1960s and the 1970s. So those are some of the major milestones that led to vaccination development over pretty much 200 years of history. And who were often the recipients of vaccinations when they were first developed? So what's so interesting about the early history of vaccination is that before we had the first smallpox vaccine, that is, that contained cowpox, 
people who practiced inoculation were pretty much anybody who wanted to avoid a really serious case of smallpox. So in Asia and Africa and the Middle East, where inoculation was practiced, there were a variety of different ways of going about this. Sometimes an inoculator would go village to village and inoculate everybody. Sometimes people just, you know, some families inoculated, others didn't. By the time inoculation reaches Europe in the 1700s, it ends up being really popular among the upper classes. And it's the upper classes who go kind of crazy for inoculation. And things stay that way through most of the 1700s until Jenner comes up with the first vaccination using cowpox. And I think that the thinking at that time was, oh, everybody will want to use this new vaccine to protect themselves and their families. But one of the first things that happened was that governments, state governments or national governments, saw this as a powerful way to protect their entire populations. So what you see in the early 1800s, after the development of that first smallpox vaccine, is a handful of governments or sometimes just the national army saying, okay, everybody has to get vaccinated against smallpox because it's in the interest of national security. That is, if our whole army is protected against smallpox, that's one disease that we won't succumb to. And if our whole population is protected against smallpox, then we are overall a healthy, robust population that can grow and trade and carry on all of our normal activities without ever fearing the threat of a serious epidemic disease. And in the later 1800s, this idea is more popular in some governments than others. And there are some nations that take a different approach. And both France and England, for instance, experiment with just vaccinating the poor. And other countries do this as well. So there are a variety of approaches that you see from one country to another. And in the United States, interestingly, we kind of hung back for the entire 19th century. We didn't rely too heavily on compulsory vaccination. It was mostly seen as a local issue. So if a, a local, if a town or a city thought that it was going to be facing an epidemic, they might say, okay, now everybody has to get vaccinated. But it was usually only in response to the threat of imminent disease. When did vaccinations become the standard for the United States for access to public education? That's really interesting. And in fact, it's probably later than most people think. Throughout the 19th century, as I mentioned, and this is true for the early part of the 20th century, vaccination is only compulsory on fairly rare occasions in the threat of an outbreak. There are a couple of places that experiment with requiring vaccination for enrollment in school. And I think one of the earliest examples of that was actually in Massachusetts, which tries that in the 1800s. But it isn't until the 1970s that that approach really takes off in the United States. And there are a couple of reasons why. The polio vaccine that was developed, and actually there were two polio vaccines developed in the 1950s and 60s, those were by and large, really popular vaccines. The public was really, really afraid of polio, really eager to protect themselves and their children. So when those new vaccines came out, people got vaccinated. And those new vaccines were based on that new virus culture capability that I mentioned that was developed by John Enders. So after the polio vaccine, all of a sudden we had these new vaccines coming quickly out of new pharmaceutical companies like Merck who were able to use these virus culture techniques to make vaccines against 
measles, for instance, and then later rubella, and then later mumps. And the public health community thought that when these new vaccines came out, the public would be just as eager to get them. And they thought in particular that the public would be really eager to get vaccinated against measles. But in fact, that wasn't the case. In fact, mostly middle and upper middle class children were vaccinated against measles because they were the ones who had the most kind of regular, frequent contact with their pediatricians. And people at lower income levels were not getting vaccinated. So school laws were seen as a way of ensuring that everybody got vaccinated regardless of class or income or family ability or access to health care. They became really popular in the late 60s and early 70s, the school vaccination laws, that is, because public health experts and epidemiologists in particular began to show that in states where there were laws requiring kids to get vaccinated in order to enroll in school, there were far fewer outbreaks of disease. So those types of laws became more popular once they were proven to be a way of vaccinating everybody regardless of class, and once they were proven as a means of reducing outbreaks of infectious disease. And can you explain more in depth the history of vaccination oversight by the government? Sure. In this country, we have several different aspects of government that are responsible for overseeing the safety of vaccines. And the FDA is a big one. The Food and Drug Administration approves new vaccines and reviews all the safety data that has been submitted with a new vaccine application. And the FDA is the agency that kind of gives the rubber stamp to a new vaccine to come onto market. In addition to the FDA, the Centers for Disease Control, which is in Atlanta, not Washington, which is my hometown, the Centers for Disease Control oversees the safety of vaccines once they're already being widely used. So once a vaccine is approved by the FDA, then the CDC plays a role in keeping track of who's getting that vaccine and what their adverse reactions or undesired consequences or side effects might be. So you have these kind of two, at a very basic level, different tiers of safety and oversight. And this came into being over more than a century of, I would say, struggle in the United States to figure out exactly what the government's role should be. Throughout the entire 19th century, the federal government was completely uninvolved in ensuring vaccine safety. And it was, in fact, the outbreak of a number of cases of tetanus that were transmitted with vaccines in the late 19th century. And this was tetanus that was contaminating vaccines. It wasn't supposed to be in there. And it ended up leading to hundreds of cases of illness and a number of deaths. And that was the first thing that actually prompted the federal government to say, okay, we need to keep an eye on this because now vaccines are being produced in a variety of different states. They're being shipped all over the place. They're being used widely. And there is no one body responsible for making sure that all of those vaccines are safe. So we got that, that first bit of government oversight that was called the Biologics Control Act in 1902. And ever since then, we've really been expanding government's role in overseeing vaccine safety right up essentially until the present. When we come back, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Elena Konis about the history of vaccinations. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. 
It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome back to the show. We are talking with Dr. Elena Konis about the history of vaccinations. Dr. Konis, have vaccinations always been a controversial subject, or is this a recent shift in our culture to begin questioning vaccines? That's such a good question, and I think it's so important to take note of the fact that from the moment that we had the very first vaccine, the smallpox vaccine, vaccination has always been controversial. And people have always expressed fears and worries about vaccines. And that first smallpox vaccine, for instance, was something that represented people's pre-existing fears about the state of society. So working class people who saw vaccines being recommended by the elite or royal class distrusted vaccines for that reason, because they didn't really trust the motives of these classes of society. They also worried about the safety of vaccines because they knew that it was an animal-based product. And this wasn't a worry limited to people of specific classes. This was a worry that was shared widely in response to the first vaccine. The other most important objection that people have voiced about vaccination has been a religious objection. In other words, that there have always been people who have felt that to vaccinate against disease is akin to playing God. And this is shaped by some particular religious beliefs. So from the very first moment that we had the first vaccine, there have been people objecting to vaccines based on religious beliefs, based on fear of what's in them, and based on questions about the motives of the people promoting those vaccines. In this country, especially in the latter 20th century to the present, we've been relying to an unprecedented extent, really, on compulsory vaccination. And that introduces a whole other level of objection that people who have all kinds of vaccine worries might not care if they're not forced to get those vaccines. But we require vaccines for enrollment in school in this country. And so we have another form of objection, which is objection to enforced vaccination. That has always been with us. All those objections to vaccination have been with us since the beginning of vaccination, But what I do want to point out is that every time the state or the government increases its involvement in saying who must get vaccinated, that tends to always be matched with resistance. So as the state power increases and and says, okay, more people must get vaccinated against these diseases under these conditions, you have more people saying, hold on, hold on. We have specific reservations that we want heard. So we are seeing, I think, in recent decades, an uptick in that kind of pushback against governmental power. What cultural shifts over the several hundred years have each significantly influenced the development and implementation of mass vaccinations? So I think what's so wonderful about the study of history when thinking about vaccination is that you can see precisely how our cultural changes and cultural trends and also our political trends all influence how the public responds to vaccination. And historians have shown wonderful examples of this. After World War II, there was a threat of a smallpox outbreak in New York City. And 
all the New Yorkers eagerly lined up to get their smallpox vaccines. It's something that you probably wouldn't necessarily see today, but maybe if there were, say, an Ebola or a Zika outbreak today in a place like New York City and there were an effective vaccine, you would see people scrambling to get those. And that's because, of course, there's a lot of cultural fear around those two diseases. So cultural fear can definitely influence how people feel about getting vaccinated. The example of New Yorkers getting vaccinated after World War II is a nice example of how patriotism and trust in government and a kind of devotion to working with everybody to protect the commons, that can increase acceptance to vaccination as well. If you look at the kind of flip side of it, what are the cultural trends or norms or patterns that have increased skepticism toward vaccines? That's where you can start to see that in the 1960s and 70s, as we were just beginning to produce new vaccines for children, as we were beginning to use compulsory approaches to encouraging the use of those vaccines, in other words, we were implementing school laws to an unprecedented extent, we were doing that in the 60s, a time when lots of people were questioning authority and signing on for the new social movements like the women's movement and the environmental movement. And those movements were all about pushing back against experts, rethinking the advice that you were being given about how to live your life, questioning technology and science and political authority. And all of that had a tremendous impact on how people perceived vaccines and the people who were promoting their use. So again, throughout time, you can kind of take the cultural temperature of our nation and see things that in all likelihood would influence either positively or negatively people's attitudes toward vaccination. What is significant about the changes in the relationship between medical professionals and their patients, which makes this particular time in our history significant? Well, I think that there are a couple of important changes. And again, I think that it's important to think across lines of class when talking about this. I think that there's a lot of attention to the fact that since the 1960s, 1970s, American healthcare consumers tend to go into encounters with their doctors or medical professions, not necessarily always looking for advice, but coming in armed with their own pre-existing knowledge and coming in prepared to ask questions and question or be circumspect about the advice or guidelines that their doctors lay out. I think that that's probably true to some extent of, in particular, middle-class consumers. But I think that what often gets lost in conversations about how vaccination attitudes are influenced by people's relationships with doctors is the fact that our healthcare system has been really, really fractured and fairly broken. And as just a couple of examples, if you live below a certain level of income, you might find it really hard to have a regular quote-unquote family doctor. Maybe if you don't have steady employment, you might go from one doctor to another doctor or only seek your health care at clinics or you know, be covered by state-level Medicaid programs that it can be challenging to form an ongoing relationship with, with one provider through. I also often see with my students, and I have taught public health graduate students for years now, 
And they often tell me the story of how as adults, they go to college, they have one doctor, they graduate college, they get a job, they have another doctor, they maybe go to graduate school, have yet another doctor, finish graduate school, get another job, have another doctor. By the time they reach their childbearing years, they're just forming a whole new relationship with a new doctor. <laughs> so that lack of continuity with a healthcare provider is something that's, that's really a feature of the modern age. Thank you so much, Dr. Conus, for joining us today and sharing just a piece of your extensive knowledge on the history of immunizations. And for our Newbies Club members, our conversation will continue after the end of this show, as Dr. Conus will share about her book, Vaccine Nation, America's Changing Relationship with Immunization. For more information about the Newbies Club, please visit our website at newmommymedia.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All right, we have a question from one of our listeners, and this comes from Hattie, and Hattie lives in New Mexico. And Hattie says, I am a first-time mom with a one-week-old newborn. Is it possible for an infant this young to develop diaper rash, even when I use ointment with every change to prevent it? What should I do if this problem persists? Hello, Hattie. This is Dr. Tara Zanvliet. Yes, it is definitely possible for your newborn to have a diaper rash in the first week. It's often the time they get the most diaper rashes. Their newborn skin is super sensitive and everything from the diaper, the cream, the wipes, and even their own urine can irritate the skin to the point of seeming like a burn. As they get older, their skin becomes much less sensitive and diaper rash happens less often. So keep the skin clean and dry. Change the diaper often and don't rub a lot with those wipes. It's hard with the thick black meconium at the beginning, but by now it should be easy to gently wipe off the stool. Consider using just a soft cloth with water instead of a wipe or use hypoallergenic wipes with aloe. You can use aloe creams, zinc creams like desitin or vitamin creams like A&D. They all help as a barrier between the wetness and the skin. If you use a zinc cream, use the original ones, not the creamies. One favorite where I trained was called Happy Heine, which was a mixture of a zinc cream, an antifungal woman's vaginal cream like Monistat, and Cortade anti-itch cream, which was hydrocortisone 1%, and it was the ointment, not the cream. And we mixed that up in equal parts and put it on at each diaper change, and it worked like a charm. If you continue having problems, then consider changing the diaper brand, even if they're cloth. I hope that helps. That wraps up our show for today. We appreciate you listening to Newbies. Don't forget to check out our sister show, Preggy Pals, for expecting parents, Parent Savers for Moms and Dads with Toddlers, The Boob Group for Moms Who Give Breast Milk to Their Babies, and Twin Talks for Parents of Multiples. Thanks for listening to Newbies, your go-to source for new moms and new babies. This has been a New Mommy Media production. The information and material contained in this episode are presented for educational purposes only. Statements and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those of New Mommy Media and should not be considered facts. 
While such information and materials are believed to be accurate, it is not intended to replace or substitute for professional medical advice or care and should not be used for diagnosing or treating health care problem or disease or prescribing any medication. If you have questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your baby, please seek assistance from a qualified health care provider. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey, mamas, don't forget to check out Mighty Moms. It's our online community built for new moms just like you. Not only can you connect with other moms, but you can also join us backstage for special mom-only online events. And you'll also be notified when we're recording so you can join us as a special guest. Visit our website, newmommymedia.com, and click on the Mighty Moms banner. It's free. That's newmommymedia.com. See you there.